Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 32, an interview with Jimmy Walters, the trackers of Oxyrhynchus. We continue our pause in the story of Roman theatre and take another step back into Greek plays. I discussed the satyr play in episode 22 of the podcast. It's just a short episode about the satyr play as we don't have much information about them, and Trackers by Sophocles is our only surviving complete example. You might want to listen again to that episode before continuing, but to remind you, the essentials are that the satyr play was presented after the trilogy of tragedies. The chorus took on the role of the satyrs, the half-men, half-goat followers of Bacchus, with the chorus leader taking on the role of the leader of the band, Selenus. The plays retold a familiar myth that was related to the previously presented tragedies, but with much comedy and joking, usually of the crude variety. So, I was very pleased to find a recent production of the play, and to be able to chat to its director, Jimmy Walters. This was a version of the play by the poet and translator Tony Harrison. It was first performed by the National Theatre in July 1988, at the Ancient Stadium in Delphi, for a one-off performance. It was then performed at the National Theatre London, opening in March 1990 and running for 42 performances. This was in the Olivier Theatre, which is the largest of the three theatres in the National Theatre complex on the south bank of the River Thames. It has a very large stage and open auditorium, which took the Greek model as part of its inspiration. Tony Harrison has history with Greek tragedies at the National Theatre, having translated their acclaimed production of the Oresteia in 1981, which was directed by Peter Hall. With trackers, Tony Harrison added two characters, Hunt and Grenfell, the archaeologists who discovered the text of the play on papyri in an old rubbish dump in Egypt. In the course of the play, Grenfell is taken over by Apollo, who is searching for the missing play that honours him, and Hunt becomes the leaner of the satires, Salinas. Jimmy works through his production company, Proud Haddock Theatre. His other credits include productions of John Osborne's A Subject for Scandal and Concern, Julius Caesar, Improbable Fiction, A Naughty Night with Noel Coward, Hamlet for a Tour in the UAE, I the Jury, Breaded Butter and Dear Ray at the Edinburgh Festival. Recently he directed Billy Bishop Goes to War for Southwark Playhouse and German Street Theatre and The Skin Game also for German Street Theatre which due to the UK lockdown in 2020 was presented via Zoom. And to keep himself busy in lockdown Jimmy co-hosts the excellent In Quarantine podcast with Alexandra Evans. Season 1 discussed several Shakespeare plays, and Season 2 is taking on the challenge of discussing novels by Charles Dickens. Alex and Jimmy get great guests on to discuss productions, so it's well worth a listen. I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. I'll be back at the end for a few thoughts, but for now, please enjoy Jimmy Waters discussing The Trackers of Oxyrhynchus by Tony Harrison. As far as I can see, Trackers wasn't revived in roughly about 30 years since its original production. So what drew you to it in 2017? Well, I had done a show at a theatre called The Fimbra, and The Fimbra Theatre has a, a kind of, I guess, a, an image or a branding of taking plays that have been lost or unearthed or due a bit of a, a, bit of a, re, a revamp. And um, they tend to be plays that are quite niche, um, quite political, quite anarchic, and, and you know, you, you you look at all those boxes, and Tony Harrison seems to tick pretty much all of them. And we and Neil McPherson, who runs the theatre, and myself, really wanted to do uh, a Tony Harrison play, and we thought it was either going to be the Trackers of Oxyrhynchus, 
or it was going to be this other play called Square Rounds. And if I'm honest with you, I read Square Rounds and I, I really, really liked it. And we actually ended up doing Square Rounds um, a couple of years later. But it was something about trackers that just, I think we felt for the first play, it's quite outside the box and it's quite mad and it's a real challenge. And it's, you know, for, for me as a director, I think, I think the thing that I always learn really kind of fuels me is to try and do things that are as much outside my comfort zone as possible. So not to do the same thing twice, but to always make apples and oranges and to always um, do something that feels a bit unusual and a bit odd. So that was the, that was the kind of the, the feeling of it really. And then, so I met Tony Harrison for a coffee and he said to me that um, we could do it on the provision. He was like, absolutely fine. But there's this moment in the play where the satyrs spring out of these boxes. And um, he, <laughs> he basically said to me, um, you know, so if you can do that moment, um, then, then you can do it. And I just, I didn't know what moment he was talking about because I hadn't seen the play. Because obviously I was four when it, when it was put on at the National. So I, I just said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Because you just say yes, you know, when you, want the, when you want the rights. You just say yes to anything. So I say, yeah, that's fine. And then I went home and had a look at the moment that he was talking about. And I realized that it was like basically impossible to do <laughs> at the theater we were at. So I spent a month just sitting there with like a pen and paper and a, and a ruler, just mapping out these, you know, sort of dimensions to it and seeing how it was all going to work um, with a sign above me saying anything is possible in theatre if you put your mind to it. And that was the thing I looked at every day when I was trying to work out this, this, this crazy impossibility. But we got there and it was great when we did. So it was good. That isn't the only difficult bit of the staging, is it? I mean, the, the idea of the papyri uh, um, mm. forming the backdrop uh, and everything is coming out of these rediscovered words is a really central theme in, in the play as Tony's uh, translated it. Uh, can you just tell us something about the space at the Finbro? Because obviously it's very different from the Olivier or the Theatre in Delphi. Uh, so that must have made a difference to the way it was staged. Yeah, absolutely. So the Finbro is is a pub um, and it's in Earl's Court and it's it's very it's a very reputable fringe theatre. So the, t- the Time Out listed it as the most influential fringe theatre in the world. But it's probably the smallest at the same time. So as well as having this great image of being you know, this, 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 this kind of hothouse of, of these lost classics, it is also um, tiny. And it's that classic space that you can imagine, you know, being right up close there with, with, with the audience. Um, and so, yeah, it's pretty much different from the Olivier stage at the National Theatre and the Theatre Delphi in every single way that you could imagine. And that translated to the piece as well. So, when the piece was written at the Theatre Delphi, it was written in a way that was very, very gladiatorial, I'd describe it as. You know, it was, as you say, it was, you know, it was people springing out of boxes. It was the god Apollo spouting verse to the mountain gods. It was, you know, it's incredibly epic and intense and big and huge, and it's designed to be at a stadium. So we were taking a play like that, and we were putting it in this tiny space at the Fimbra. And the challenge really i think is to is to kind of make it a lot more personal and to make it a lot more intimate because if you obviously if you do the same play it'd be very stressful for the audience having that thrown in their face in a theater that small so uh, we we didn't just change the volume of the actors we changed the intentions of the lines and we made what was a kind of you know 
amplophoric, grand speaking scene, a personal conversation. And that was very, very tough. But the actors were so great. You know, we had these two wonderful actors um, in the opening scene, uh, Tom Bimeshaw and Richard Glaves, and they just did an amazing job with it. So it was it was lucky that we had such a great cast. And you mentioned there that the audience at the Findler would be expecting something a bit unusual. So seeing for them, going to see a Greek play in itself wouldn't be something strange, I'm guessing. And obviously Tony Harrison's name on it is a draw in itself. Yes, I think they were expecting to see something unusual. I think that the thing about Tony Harrison is no one really quite knows, you know, even I'd say Tony Harrison fans don't really know which way it's going to go. I think mm. there's no one who leaves unsurprised from any of his plays and, and and the nature of the writing is that he really does throw you around like a roller coaster ride. And there are, you know, moments in scenes where you think it's going one way and he'll just shift to something completely different. And he plays with you as an audience member like that um, and always takes you down the road that you're not expecting. So um, I think that's certainly the case with trackers of Oxyrhynchus. I mean, for us rehearsing it, I remember it was always a journey of discovery. So everything we were finding out, we were finding out for the first time, which was kind of it's stressful and insane. But it was such an amazing feeling when it was when it was on the stage and the, the show was allowed to breathe a little bit, you know, and the actors became a bit more mm. confident with what they were doing because you don't know how an audience is going to respond to this thing. You know, we rehearsed this over Christmas for about four weeks and we just thought, what well, you know, we had every single um, broadsheets coming to watch it. It's, it's you know, probably the, I'd, I'd say the play that my theatre company have done that's had the most exposure. I, you know, that's probably a combination of Tony Harris and the Fimber and the craziness of this play. But I was looking at these costumes and, the, you know, these basically, I'm sure we'll come onto it, but satyrs have large phalluses, sort of erect <laughs> penises. And just thinking, oh my God, we've got the New York Times. And they're like, what the hell? This is going to be the end of a very short directing career. Um, and, you know, so we, we, you don't know how it's going to go down. Um, and it's very, very frightening and very fraught for everyone involved. But the moment you hear that first laugh from the audience and that first acceptance of the craziness of it, you just, you just, it's a bit like doing a bungee jump, you know, it's so terrifying. Then the moment you jump off and you realize you're safe and you feel the little thing tighten around your ankle, it's the best feeling in the world. So it's, yeah, I, I don't regret going through it because it was such a great feeling, but God, it was crazy on the way there. Oh, the, the joys and tribulations of theatre. That's uh, I think that just about sums up how we most of us feel about the theatre experience one way and another. Oh, yes. So, well, why don't we talk about the satires then? Because uh, obviously they, they are absolutely central to, to the play. Um, how did you had, approach um, costuming? And, and yes, let's talk about the phallus. Well, so, <laughs> yeah, um, the satires were, you know, I, I, I think the, the, they're the lightness of the piece, certainly. I mean, obviously the, the whole central message for those that don't know is Tony Harrison takes the satires who are seen as these kind of pisshead half man, half goat creatures who revel in the woods and drink and dance um, and talks about them really being, I guess, the underclass, you know, the, 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 they've had the lyre taken from them by the God Apollo. Art's been preserved for the elites and they are seen as the people who have to stay underneath the stages and are just basically the muck that the, that the upper classes treat as filth. And he throws us very quickly into the equivalent of that, which is, um, you know, people on the South Bank 
homeless or in our case outside the Fimbra. Um, so that gives a bit of context to who these people are. And when the play begins, I think it starts off almost quite strange and unusual and no one really quite knows what's going to happen. The moment the satyrs come on, it's a little bit like the Seven Dwarfs. It's a, it's a, it's a huge relief. They're funny characters. They're very comical. And we went down a few roads with the costumes. We had a situation where um, we tr it was a bit of trial and error. So the first costume didn't really work because they were just kind of all in one. It was quite similar to how it was at the National, actually, but kind of all in one onesies. Um, and then what we did is we actually had a bit of a, a revamp and the actors actually said, you know what? I think it was like, the, it was crazy. It was, the, it was like the dress rehearsal and we were really up against time. And the actors just said, you know what, we can, we're just going to like, we can, like one of us can run to Soho and just grab some, grab some uh, <laughs> things that look a bit like phalluses and uh, <laughs> strap them around and get some fur and cut it. And we, we, we all just kind of like came together and had this crazy situation where we scrabbled together and made this, these last minute costumes, which turned out to be absolutely brilliant. So what we had in the end was actors who were topless with these kind of goat legs um, which was actually a lot easier for them to to move in and they do a lot of dancing they do a lot of tap that you know so it it, it gave them a lot of freedom and breathing space to 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 do that as well um yeah so did you did you think about not using a phallus at all i i think i think you have to i think it's um it's it's what well you you think about those things don't you because you look for every single possible reason to play the safe option um, and then you realise that with Tony Harrison, you can't really play the safe option. So you just have to go there with it and and you, you have to be bonkers. Um, I think if we hadn't have used phalluses, it, the, uh, I think for anyone who wouldn't know what a phallus is, it wouldn't have really worked and, and, and the lines wouldn't have really made sense at those points. Um, but, and I think also for the people that do know what a phallus is, I think they, in my opinion, I think they'd feel slightly cheated. They'd, 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 they'd ask why we haven't used them. And I think the point of Tony Harrison is that you have to, as I said, you have to go to the extremities of it for it to work. I think Tony and Safe don't, don't go together. You know, he wants, he wants the audience to feel uh, slightly uneasy with things like that. So, um, yeah, but in a, in a space like the Fimber, which is quite small, you definitely saw them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he, he's definitely a, a poet who um, looks at things from the theatrical point of view. He's he's very scholarly, but he is a theatre person for, for, foremost, I think. Um, and I haven't seen the play, I've just read it. Mm. Um, and I was quite surprised because his only work I knew before was V, where mm. the language is really very crude um, mm. and, and, you know, of course, quite a stir at the time when it was published. Whereas this is really a much more lighthearted sort of ribald, as we'd say, maybe crude, but not offensive in itself. Not to most people, I wouldn't think. No, I think, I think so. But I think, you know, there's always a, there's always an underlying point to it. Excuse the pun. Um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, I think it's not just funny costumes and, and people jumping about like, in a in a in a in a in a sort of um you know little Britain type way. It's that that, that there's a point that he's making to everything. And um you know he very quickly throws you into that new in, in into that modern day context of what a satire is. Um and the thing about Tony's writing is it's very um unapologetically contrasting. You know, so a, a lot of the rhyming couplets will be very, very different. One will either be light and one will be very dark. 
Um, one could be old English, the other could be very modern slang. Um, and he believes in contrasting extremities and rendering the familiar strange, you know, the uh, uh, pe people are used to RP accents mm. when speaking verse and he'll throw it out of a Northern accent. Um, and he'll do things that are slightly unusual. And with those, and he doesn't really do gray areas, you know, deliberately so, um, in the same way that when we jump from, um, you know, fifth century satyrs to 2016 Earl's Court outside the Fimbra, um, there's no in between. You know, it's not it's not a linear journey of exploration of how we get there. He just goes, ba boom, we're here, ba boom, we're there, deliberately, to kind of show you that actually the two are kind of the same. It doesn't, you know, all the stuff in the middle is is is, is meaningless. So, um, yeah, he's a he's it, 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 that that's the way the kind of language works, and so. I think as a director, I always try and, you know, I always think as a director, what do you, you know, what's your job as a director? And I think if you come in, you know, I mean, obviously I, I respect every single director's way of working. And, you know, there's been some brilliant directors who work the complete opposite to this. But I think that if you are, in my opinion, if you're going in with grand ideas um, or you're, you're trying to put your kind of identity as a director on the piece, um, and you're trying to war against the text, um, I think that can 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 often uh, not really work because you know the, the 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 writing and the rhythm and the musicality of the writing has been written in a certain way um, from that playwright. And and I see my job is to kind of showcase that their imagination, if you like, to showcase their piece of work. Because um, you know, if I went in think, you know, if I went in thinking, right, Tony's Tony's written this play, but I'm going to do the Jimmy Walters splash you know um that's fine but i can only do the jimmy walter splash if it's under the umbrella of tony's vision and i i very much believe in playing his rhythm of the language so that kind of contrasting element of the lines um i really try to to push for that yeah right so the other big element i was getting from the script was that there's a lot of greek and some of it the audience are expected to to pick up and chant back at times yeah. Um, so how how easy was that to work with your actors um, who presumably aren't Greek speakers naturally? <laughs> no. Well, in, in the middle of rehearsal, I, I, there was a bit of a lifesaver, and I have to give him a bit of a shout out. Is um, my uh, old lecturer at university, a guy called George Rodostenos, Doctor George Rodostenos, um, who was Greek. Um, I got in touch with him in a moment of panic in rehearsal. And I just said, help, there's loads of ancient Greek we need to learn. And he put me in touch with this uh, this woman called Andriana, um, who was able to translate a lot of the language for us. Um, and it's difficult because, you know, I, I think look, you know, thinking back to it, we went online and we found like lots of different translations. But it's about how you say that, right? You know, you can you can read it, but you can write it. But how do you speak it? And so we had a lot of voice recordings going on, and um, and yeah, and I, I mean, I, I was reading the play the other day in preparation for this, rereading it, and um, the actor who played Apollo, you know, the moment where he kind of turns into Apollo from Grenfell and he's speaking Greek, and I don't know how he just learned that so fluently every night and and up the tempo and changed the pace, and it was, it was amazing. So. Um, they did such a great job of learning it. And yeah, the bit with the audience, it was, well, the lucky thing about that is it's a bit like karaoke. So it comes up on the screen um, and he says it. So they see it on the screen. It's, it, uh, it was it. It's Delta, Papa, Papa, Oseta. 
and he's like sing it back to me and he gets the whole audience singing it um and uh and yeah so that was that was kind of okay but yeah when you put it on a screen you do hope that there's not going to be a scholar there who's like actually it was written differently to that so yeah we had to be completely on the detail but that definitely absolutely yeah that's well well done for remembering some of it there that's that's pretty good <laughs> Uh, and yeah, of course, the other big Greek element is masks. So were the actors masked for your production? No, no actors were masked. Um, it was, it was, I, th- I mean, for me, actually, the masks, I don't know if masks are actually mentioned in the scripts, but I know that um, I think it wouldn't have worked with masks because for me, the point of, you know, the beauty of it is is the seamlessness of the transition. You know, you, you, you have this guy who's Grenfell um, and it's, you know, 1907, he's an oxy And then suddenly he's Apollo and it's an internal thing. You know, it's an internal thing that takes him over. And I think if he was to put a mask on, it, it, it would ruin that sense of seamlessness um, in the same way that with the satyrs um, suddenly prancing around the woods in the fifth century are now on the South bank in 2016 um, as, as, as kind of young uh, tear away youths who are graffitiing a, a roadside. Um, I think taking the masks off again, it, it would have highlighted that difference. Whereas I think the point Tony wants to make is that it can happen almost without you realizing it, and that's in the language as well. In that, you know, I think in in that wonderful speech of Silenus's where he talks about Marseilles being flayed, um, that speech uh, begins in the fifth century, and before before you know it in the middle of that speech, we're in London and he's just drinking in London. And so, and so, yeah, I think masks would have created that division. Whereas I think, yeah, the beauty of it was that they just were who they were and it doesn't matter what time they're in. They're just, that's this because of, because of the fact that they're, they're the underclass really. Mm. Yeah. In the introduction to the published edition, um, Tony Harrison talks about uh, the importance of community in the Greek theatre and the fact that everybody was in the daylight and there was no division between actor and orchestra and audience. So I guess you were kind of getting that in the closeness of the Fimbra as such a small theatre. Um, presumably the audience were sitting in the dark, but still very close to the action. Yeah, that absolutely. And I think um, it's a very it's a very Brettian thing as well. You know, you talk, you, the people talk about the fourth wall, don't they? Um, Mm. and you know, when the fourth wall's up, you know, it's very much like the actors are in their own little world and the audience are in their own world. Whereas in this, the fourth wall was very, very much down. And so, as you say, I think, I think it's a moment where we actually bought the house lights up. I think it actually might've been when the audience were chanting and yeah, it's, it's very, um, you know, the the great thing about the Fimber is that you can decide what configuration you want to have the space in. So you can have it in traverse, which for people, if they don't know what traverse is, it's, like a big long line with the audience on either side. You can have it in the round where the audience sit round the stage, um, or you can have it end on, which is how we had it, where it's like all the audience sitting, looking at the stage. Um, but we actually chose to have it end on a certain way round where you could actually see the fire exit signs. And you kind of knew that you were always in a theater. Cause I think that's the environment he's trying to create. I mean, certainly by the end, you know, when you, when he sets it literally outside the theater, the final scene is set, you know, at the Fimbra. So he 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 wants to make you very aware as a, as an audience member that you're always in a theatre watching a play. And yeah, as you say, the lights up and the sense of community and the shared experience um, definitely is a is a strong element of that. 
Yeah, let's just speak about that ending then, maybe because I should explain that there are really two versions of this play, the one that was performed in Delphi, the one that was performed at the National, and they are quite different in many ways, um, although the central translation of the trackers itself is is obviously the same. I think the second version, the national version, becomes much more of a political piece because the satires turn into the homeless then living on the South Bank in quite large numbers for anyone who's not familiar with London, uh, especially um, in at that time. I think in 2017, there was quite a homeless problem going on. How did you handle that, taking that out of the theatre as part of the performance? Yeah, well, it, as you say, so at the, at the National Theatre, um, I think there was a moment, actually, I don't think this was at the National, I think this might have been at a performance in Yorkshire, but um, they actually opened the back, um, the back seat, uh, what's the word, what am I looking for? Um, the set, they opened the set to actually show real life homeless people to the audience. So actually, it became so meta and so Brettian that it exposed the audience to, to literally realities. They opened the back doors of the theatre, but there was such a big homeless problem. Um, I think, it, yes, I mean, what what happens, to, 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 to give a bit of context, is the satires, um, we, 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 we throw ourselves into the modern day where um, we see Silenus, who was the chief satyr, now drunk on his own um, in London, outside, set outside the theatre you're putting trackers on at. So in our case, it was in Earl's Court. He was stumbling around. He sees a group of youths uh, graffitiing a, a, a wall, um, and it's Marseilles, his brother, on the wall, and they speak, they spell it wrong, and they beat him up, and they're these kind of angry kids who don't really have a sense of purpose and are just drunk, and they are the satyrs. So he says, you know, come on, we can we can do this, and they they say, um, you know, there's no room for us anymore as satyrs, and he says, there are, there are, and it's and they run off, and then he's freezing cold, and then suddenly the satyrs come on again, and they are. As you say, they're, they're people on the streets, they're homeless, they're in sleeping bags, they're, they're shivering in the cold. Um, and, and yeah, I think it, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it, that when Tony wrote the play, um, there was a huge amount of division, especially in society at the time. This was in 1990, not, well, 1988 for the first one, but then 1992. Um, and it certainly felt that way um, uh, in 2017, so 2016, 2017. Um, and it felt like that hadn't really gone away and it was very important to capture. So, um, yeah, it was a really, really powerful part of it. And, um, and it was, just, it just so happened at the time where I was doing, I did a bit of volunteering, not because of the play. I just did it, um, cause a friend of mine was doing it and I thought it sounded quite interesting, which was kind of helping homeless people to, um, you know, to get bridged back into society and spend a bit of time with them, chat to them. And it, it was, you know, fascinating hearing about, um, you know, life on the streets and, you know, just, just, just various different things that people told you. And, um, you know, and that's a whole other kind of topic really, but um, it certainly was a happy landing that that happened at the time that I was yeah preparing for the, for, for, for this in particular. Yeah, that that ending is really powerful, even just reading it off the page, because you've got the whole description of Marseus, um, what happens to him. So for those who don't know, he gets flayed alive by Apollo because he played the flute too well and upset Apollo. And the, the whole description of that piece, the poetry in there, I found uh, probably the most shocking bit of the play as I read it in some ways. Really powerful stuff. And yeah, and I think that the the end centering around uh, homelessness is much more powerful than the Del- uh, the Delphi production, where it was the satires end up being a football team kicking a ball around, which is is a bit light. I 
the way I put that makes it sound a bit lighter than it actually comes across when you read it. But I think the the other ending is much more powerful. Tony had obviously put a lot of thought into it in the intervening years between those those productions. Yes, and I think um, I, I, absolutely. I think I think the core centre of the piece is that um, there are a, you know that there are a group of people. Um, the satyrs who have found this liar and they've discovered it and they have it taken away from them by Apollo. And he says, it's mine. It's not yours. You don't deserve it. And you will never be allowed to go from low to high. So, you know, to go up on the stage as it were, as a kind of metaphorical thing they use. And as you say, it's absolutely right. They, um, you know, it's, it's the, it's the idea that Marseilles actually, played it really well and outplayed Apollo, um, which proved the point that actually, you know, these people are, are, can do it and, and, and are as good at, you know, and, and, he, and even better. And he practiced and he got good. So Apollo had him tortured. And since then, um, the, the underclass or, you know, however we call modern day satyrs, you know, the, 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 the working class, the, the you know, um, have been kept at a certain level um, I think what Tony's saying is they've been kept at a certain level by the system that they haven't been allowed to break through. And that is represented by this stage at the very end. And Silenus's very powerful speech <clears throat> is, am I going to walk on that stage? Am I going to dare to go up? Am I going to dare to go up to, to do what my brother did and actually stand there and, um, and, and speak and, and go from low to high and he stands on the stage and the way that the play ends is there's this Apollonian arpeggio piece of music that starts playing gets louder and louder and louder. And then there's a huge scream and it's supposed to represent Marseille's screaming, but, but it could also very well be Silenus is screaming as a punishment for him getting up on the stage. So it's a very, very powerful message. And as you say, I think having um, a political ending, um, just it kind of follows through on the point that the play's been making all the way through the story, really, and it takes it to the finish line that that it's ultimately it's art preserved for the elite, uh, and it's um, and you know there's so many other different kind of strands of that argument as well about you know people always talk, don't they, about theatre being too expensive and theatre being preserved for a you know only a, if if you're not careful you're going to have a certain type of person watching a certain type of actor perform a certain type of role. And it really is going to be this very elitist thing. And this is supposed to, you know, it's supposed to represent life. It's supposed to be holding a mirror as, as Hamlet says, you know, holding a mirror up to nature, you know, to see, to see real existence. And that can't happen if there's only, you know, 3% of the population that are allowed to see it. And it, and I think even now, actually, it would be very interesting to put trackers on now because, um, you know, theater, sadly, I think, you know, if we're not careful, um, next year is 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 going to become very elitist. It will have to become so expensive, you know, with things like social distancing. And you are going to get it probably being a little bit more like the opera in that sense, um, that only a certain number of people will be able to afford to to regularly go to the theatre. And I think putting trackers on now is a you know would be probably even more powerful. Right, and well, yes, that's sobering, isn't it? Because we're talking about a play that was presented. Back in Athens, to the whole population, or you know, whole population minus women and slaves, probably, and as a comic piece after the end of having watched three pretty serious tragedies, but it's still got a serious message in it. That discussion between high art and low art is a political one, even in the 
the fragments of the play we have that are original. I mean, Tony's not added all of that in. He's taken a theme that's there and expanded on it, I think. And because the ending, it is the bit of the play we don't have. So, you know, Tony's definitely taken his spin on on what was left there. But I think the whole thing is still a serious piece, although it was definitely played for laughs at the time as well. And the two can merge together. Well, they have. I think they have to merge together. And I think the, the more comical it, it is, the more tragic it can be as well. And that, you know, and that's sometimes they always say, don't they, that comedy works best when, you know, there's sometimes the darker the backdrop you set your comedy, the brighter that little comic spark always is. And um, there's so many great examples of that, you know, in, in, in history. But, you know, you only have to really look at something like, you know, the final scene of Blackadder or, um, you know, the, 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 these, these moments where, um, you know, I, I think comedy is, personally for me, comedy or good comedy is born out of darkness. Um, and there was a saying, I can't remember what it was, that, you know, if there's someone ringing in pain and they're in such pain and it's so awful, then the, then the last thing left, the only thing they can do is laugh. Um, and sometimes, you know, the more fearful we are, um, the more hilarious things are when they, you know, a completely tenuous example. But I remember when I was having a back operation and I was so nervous, I was about 14 and I was like freaking out, you know, internally. And I was about to go in under the knife and my dad came in and he just introduced me to the young ones and we sat in the hospital <laughs> and it was so funny because I was so terrified and it's just such a, you know, and I think, I think it, that's, that's the way, you know, and I, th- I think sometimes when comedy doesn't come out of darkness, when it's just funny, it is funny, but it's not, it, it, you, you lose that sense of power. And I think for me, trackers only works. The, the, the comedy of trackers works when you have a very, very serious backdrop that you're setting it against, because it, uh, you know, otherwise it's, otherwise it's just, there's no depth to it. You know, there's no, there's no color. It's just, it's just people with funny, funny fallacies doing a funny dance, which is great, but it's very short lived. It's very myopic. Um, And it really, really comes into its own. I think when you put it in an entire context of the underpinning message of this, of this story that, that Tony's trying to, trying to say. And, and you feel that that still resonated, even though you were producing 30 years after the original and the original is based on something centuries old. I do. And actually, you know, it, it, it's a funny thing because, you know, as, as I said, as a director, you know, you're really trying to showcase that writer's imagination. And, and that's what he, you know, the, 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 there is a point that Tony's trying to make. And I think that's, that's, I think in terms of today, I think it always resonates. I think as long as there's um, division, of any kind, it will always, it will always sit very comfortably against that backdrop. And I think, you know, Tony's someone, you know, a bit of background about Tony is that he's from Leeds. It's where I went to university. It's where he went to university as well. And he has always felt that he will, you know, to, he wants to make the point that actually there are, that there, there has always been this case for art only being eligible for the, for the elite, you know, for the upper classes. Um, and he takes that argument and flips it on its head and messes with you as an audience member deliberately, unapologetically, and throws you about and roughs you up a bit. And that's that's very much what he's what he's doing in Trackers. I think you're supposed to feel awkward as an audience member at the, at the end of it. You don't you, you don't want to feel safe as an audience member for sure. Yes, I can I can well imagine that just from reading the script. So let's finish with how how were the reviews? The reviews are really good, um, and it was. But you know the the the, the most important review review of all was Tony and um, I, I, I think when you put on a play that crazy um, it's always gonna throw in you know d- d- divide audiences to an extent I got um, I got it in the neck from a couple of the um, 
broadsheets, uh, you know, and I've got some phone calls from journalists saying, you know, this, oh, so, you know, almost like, are, are they my opinions? Are they, are they things that I think? And, you know, you're, you know, you're a, you're a middle-class boy and you, you know, you're trying to sort of throw all these big things out there, but I'm, I'm showcasing Tony's imagination. You know, that's my, my job as a director is, is I think it would be wrong if I was to kind of water it down and go middle of the road with it. It's not who the, that's not the point the playwright's trying to make. My job is to, is to showcase his message and what he's trying to say. So, um, you know, we, we got that from that side. We got applauded from the other side. We got, um, you know, it was, it was on the whole very positive and it felt amazing when the, when, when the play opened and we finally could just go, okay, right. That's that, because it had been such a stressful rehearsal period. Um, and it was so intense and it was just the relief, I think more than anything, um, on that first preview when the actors like ran down and we're just like, let's just get a beer. Let's just, Oh God, we all deserve it. It was, it was amazing. Um, but I mean the best moment, I think I've had two moments in my life that were, were genuine elation um, and genuine elation. And this is one of them where all these reviews came out, they were good. Um, but you know, they always say don't read reviews or there's a kind of necessary blindness in the creative and, you know, to actually kind of just not, think too much about them and to focus on the piece because good or bad, they can affect the performance in some way. And I remember, um, I just remember being terrified about Tony coming. That was the one thing that, you know, even after all the reviews came out, I thought, but Tony's coming in week four and I'm, you know, <laughs> I, I don't care about the guardian or like, you know, I just, it's, it's him. Oh my God. Um, and I just really wanted to make him proud. And I really wanted to, um, be as subservient as possible to everything that he wanted to originally do in the national theatre production that to try and recreate that as best we could. Um, and then the day Tony came, I remember I was with my dad just before and I said to my dad, like, what, you know, like, what do I do? Do I turn up? Do I watch it? I can't watch it. I'll freak out. And he said, um, you know, just turn up, shake his hands, be very, very nice. And, you know, just turn up a bit before. So I said, okay, fine. So I went, you know, my dad doesn't live a million miles away from the theatre. So I walked down there and I just um, got a call from the stage manager saying, yeah, he's already sitting in the audience. And I was like, oh, I just missed him. So I um, I just got to the theatre and at the time I smoked and I just remember like chain smoking, pacing around the theatre. And it was like the longest hour and a half of my life. And it, like every minute felt like an hour and I just was so anxious. And I went into the theatre and I... Um, I luckily had my friend, the composer with me and uh, we just sat there at the bar and I was just doing that thing where you like pretend to read the paper, you know, as everyone's coming down and he came down the stairs and he had this big smile on his face and he had his arms out and he just went, Jimmy. And we hugged and we shared a bottle of wine and we just, you know, he's 80, by the way, he was 80 at the time. So it was very impressive. Uh, <laughs> he's just like had a bottle of wine. Um, he didn't have the whole bottle of wine. I might add, he was very much shared between about four or five of us, but, um, but yeah, he was just a delight and he loved it and it meant so much. And it was a moment that I held on to because it was just such a, such a wonderful feeling. Oh, that's great, Jimmy. Thank you very much. I'm going to leave you there with that good feeling. Uh, great place to stop, I think. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate talking to you. Thanks so much. Pleasure. I hadn't heard the metaphor of theatre as a bungee jump before, but it really rang true. I think Jimmy was able to articulate there something of what the satire play meant to its original audience. As Jimmy said, the comedy that emanates from darkness is the most powerful sort. So yes, the satire is a form of release 
but that doesn't mean it becomes meaningless or short-lived. We can sit and chuckle with these dancing, drunk, sweary satires, but still see the pain they are in because of their position in society. The specific political aspect of this version, showing the concern for how the homeless and disenfranchised will ever get out of their situation, may be the modern playwright's addition to the piece, but the broader point about the plight of those stuck at the bottom rung in society is original to the Athenian play. Their fight, represented in the false distinctions between high and low art, and by the cruel treatment of Marcellus by Apollo for his expert flute playing, is a thread that links the political drama today back to the ancient Athenians. Tony Harrison captures the mixture of lighter comedy and a serious undertone, and I think gives a good estimation of how this could have appeared to the original audience. When we touched on the use of masks, in this case the decision not to use masks, I was also struck by how important the internal transformations of the modern characters are. We're familiar with this concept from Euripides and the Bacchae, where Pentheus is taken over by Bacchus, but here it's also used to bring the play to the pleasant day. In such a small theatre, the mask isn't needed for any practical purpose, and as Jimmy said, he didn't want to introduce them as a distancing device. Such intimacy with the characters is, I think, derived from both the intimate venue and the adaptation itself. And what a fine example this is of how an ancient play can live on meaningfully through thoughtful adaptation. The fact that a play like this can still challenge us over matters of concern to society is very much down to the skill of the adapter. This is not so far from how ancient Athenians may have felt about it, and shows the power of theatre where we can, in effect, sit alongside the citizens of ancient Athens and contemplate our place in society in relation to those in a less comfortable position. So, my thanks again to Jimmy for sharing his thoughts on the play and the directorial process. We touched on the perilous state of theatre that we expect in the next few years at least, and it's still difficult at this time to see how experimental and cutting-edge theatre can become viable again. But I feel a bit more optimistic when I hear from people like Jimmy, who have such a love and enthusiasm for the art. We will find a way. Please do find the In Quarantine podcast on your app of choice, and give Jimmy and Alex a listen. Next time, we have a little something extra for Christmas before getting back to the Theatre of Rome in January. And if you would like to support the podcast, please find us on patreon.com for additional content and transcripts of the podcast episodes or at ko-fi.com if you just fancy tipping me the price of a coffee to say thanks. All contributions help to keep the garret warm while I research and record and are gratefully received. On the Patreon feed, I'll shortly be adding an episode with some more details of Hunt and Grenfell and their discovery at Oxyrhynchus. You can get access to that and all the bonus episodes and transcripts for the main podcast as soon as you sign up at patreon.com. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp@gmail.com at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp.com.